Uh, in your Bibles tonight, we're going to be looking at a passage from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 this evening. Uh, I think you've probably noticed the different songs that we've sung tonight all on one common theme. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, you may even know where we're going uh, with the passage here this evening. Hebrews chapter 10, the two verses that we'll be looking at tonight are verses 24 and 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. In a moment, uh, we'll look at this. We'll actually uh, look at a few verses prior to these two verses in a sermon that I've titled, Stick Together. Stick Together. Hebrews 10, and in a moment, we'll look at verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Stick Together. We live in a day and age of social networking. But I think we can make the argument that we're maybe less social today than we've ever been before. Uh, this may not apply to everyone, but in general, rather than being connected to one another, we're more connected to our phones and our computers and our gadgets and gadgets than we are with one another. There have been studies which show that the average person, the average person checks his phone, and this is, may be astonishing to you, but the average person checks his phone 75 times per day. 75 times per day. Many people do this. The majority of it is to check the time, believe it or not. Uh, I find myself doing this, and I wear a watch. Every once in a while, I'll pull my phone out. What time is it? Instead of doing this. Uh, but 75 times per day, that is the average person. You may not be, you may be on the lower end of that. Maybe you're on the high end of that. Uh, but the average person checks his phone 75 times per day. And even if you're just doing it to check, your, check the time, what often ends up happening is you swipe the screen or you do whatever you need to do to unlock the phone. So now you're past looking at the time and now you're checking the weather and you're checking the calendar and you're checking your emails or you're checking scores or you're checking your social media apps and a whole host of different things that your phone offers. And before you know it, an entire hour has gone by and all we wanted to do was find out what time it was. Our phones are even kind enough these days, if you have a smartphone, to let us know how much time we spent looking at them each day over the course of the week. Thank you for that. Uh, my phone does this to me every Sunday morning. What a conviction this is. I get a little notification. Guess what? You spent way too much time on your phone this week. On average, you did this. I'm not going to tell you because it's embarrassing. And as good as phones are to make connections, which is what they're designed to do. Strangely enough, they are what lead us to being more disconnected than anything else. Who would have ever thought that the day would come where phones could do as much as they're doing today? You can watch TV on your phone. You can read books on your phone. You can send and receive emails on your phone. You can play games on your phone. You can search the internet on your phone. You take pictures on your phone. You can do your banking all in the palm of your hand. Uh, you can control your thermostat. You can order food. You never have to leave your couch. This little device can bring food right to your door. You can listen to music, and, and aside from the, the basic features of talking to someone in real time, which is what phones were only designed to do, 
There are so many crazy things that we can do with these little devices. And as nice as some of these features are, and as useful as some of them have proven to be, there is a much better means of staying connected with people. One that has been around longer than phones have ever existed, and that is the church. The church, believe it or not, is a great place for people to stick together and to stay connected. We seem to be living in a day where the church is declining, though. In the last 10 years or so, there have been multiple reports of churches that are dying and just closing their doors. There are increasing numbers of people who profess to believe in no religion at all. In fact, those who were polled and given the option to select no religion grew from 12% of the adult population to 17% in just the last 10 years. It's been observed that since the 1960s, Americans have become 10% less likely to join a church and 25 to 50% less likely to get involved in church activities. As a result, what we see is fewer church members and the members that we do have are less active than what they would have normally been. During the 1950s, there seemed to be a surge in church attendance, but that surge has overwhelmingly reversed, and quite frankly, it has even overcompensated and going in the opposite direction. Uh, people are not only staying away from church, but they're staying away from community groups. They're staying away from service organizations and, and different clubs of the like. Rather than interacting with people face-to-face, -face, we're choosing to do things electronically through a screen, whether on your phone or your computer or a tablet. We're choosing to be disconnected rather than we're choosing to be connected face-to-face. -face. It may have originally started out as out of convenience, but it has quickly turned into something that is making us more disconnected and more distant. Every once in a while, something will happen, though, that will send people to church. We saw something happen a little over 20 years ago. After the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, people flocked to church to get back to the sense of community. When we start feeling insecure, cell phones and computer screens are cold and irrelevant. TVs are too impersonal. And we eventually get to the point where we need some form of human interaction. When we had the economic crisis of 2008, the New York Times had this headline, Bad Times Draw Bigger Crowds to Churches. The article would go on to highlight various spikes in attendance of evangelical churches during every recessional cycle over the last 40 or 50 years. And in each instance, growth jumped and it jumped exponentially, 50% in the wake of some sort of bad news before quickly settling back to normal once life became comfortable again. How does this affect our society? How does this influence people today? A theologian by the name of Leonard Sweet, he wrote that each one of us lives on many levels and we need multi-leveled relationships with many different kinds of people to be healthy and whole. With the decline of extended families in Western cultures, this becomes all the more pressing. There are two different studies, two different studies that have shown over a, a large number of years that the number of people are reporting that they had 
no one they could share any important issues with had tripled. Nearly half of all Americans had either one or no close friends at all. Meanwhile, virtual social networking was on the rise. Not that social networking can't be beneficial, but this can never replace human interaction. You might have 500 friends on Facebook. You may have 1,000 followers on Twitter and Instagram, and you still feel like no one really knows you. God has created us as social people, and social people need human interaction, not through a TV screen or not through a cell phone screen or a computer screen, but we need to be face-to-face, and we seem to be in a day and age where we're craving that more than ever. During tough times, we need human interaction. We need friends that we can rely on to provide us comfort when we're afflicted, to help us when we're in trouble, to talk to when we're distressed, to admonish us when we're wrong, and to hold us accountable for living with godly integrity. The Bible tells us what God thought about this in Genesis 2, verse 18. It said, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Praise the Lord for that verse. It is not good that the man should be alone. It was at that point that God created the helpmeet for Adam and Eve. And he provided the very first human-human interaction. We are designed for human interaction. We need vital relationships in our lives. And quite frankly, that is why God sent his son, Jesus, to come to earth, to put on human flesh, to be one of us, to have a vital relationship with us. He knew what we needed, and as believers, the only way that we are mature spiritually is through a healthy relationship with Christ. And a lot of that can be nurtured through fellow Christian uh, relationships, providing accountability to one another. Together, believers become greater than the sum of their parts. The Bible describes the church as a body of believers each individual representing a certain part of the body and each serving a vital role to keep the entire body functioning at full capacity. Listen to what we're told in Malachi 3.16. Malachi 3.16, it says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord. And that thought upon his name. What a beautiful thought. When God-fearing believers come together, speak with one another in the name of God, God listens and makes their conversations part of eternity in his book of remembrance. What a really neat thought. Jesus declared in Matthew 18, verse 20, he said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You can always experience the presence of God when you're alone. Uh, You should every day spend time with God in prayer, spend time reading his word, but God offers us so much more, something so much more special uh, when believers come together to share in him. If we're ever going to find peace in the craziness of life, we need to be calm in our hearts, as we talked about several weeks ago. We need to show compassion to others. We need to be productive in our relationships. We need to remain persistent with the craziness. But we also need to stick together in church. We were created to live together, not to live in isolation. 
We end up taking for granted all the time that we spend together in church with fellow believers because we might not think that it is all that important, but you never know the impact that you might have on someone else. God's word teaches us that we should be living every day with the mindset that Christ is going to return at any moment. And the New Testament writers were led by the Holy Spirit to deliver that same message. Look at the passage before you here this evening. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Maybe very familiar verses to you. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. As you turn on the news each day, it isn't too far-fetched to think that Christ could return at any day. In fact, it looks more and more like it could be really close. Things are not getting progressively better. Things are getting progressively worse. This realization should be motivating us to be more active in the Lord's work. And God is very clear that part of his work is for believers to stay connected, to stick together to stick together through the fellowship of the church. As we see the day approaching, as he says there at the end of verse number 25, as we see the day approaching, we need to be actively preparing ourselves and edifying one another. And one of the ways in which God has instructed us to do this is through regularly gathering together in his name. These verses are so crucial for the growth and the connectivity of the believers, especially today when the focus is more on less interaction and more isolation. We need each other now more than ever. We cannot afford to be cut off from each other. Jesus declared in John 15 in verse number five, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, he says, ye can do nothing. Jesus shows us there that all believers are connected to him. We all find our source of life and our source of, of, of service and, and productivity in him. He is the one who helps us grow and mature. We cannot afford to be cut off from one another or from the vine that sustains us, Jesus Christ, that feeds us and helps us to grow. When we have that connection with Christ, when we're walking in, in union and fellowship with him, then we're able to bring forth much fruit, the Bible says. As we take a closer look at what it says here in Hebrews 10 and verse 24 and 25, I want you to notice, first of all, the command to stick together. The command to stick together. There are three exhortations that are given to us by the Lord, and each of them start with, let us. Let us, let us, let us. Let me draw your attention to the first one back in verse number 22. Hebrews 10 and verse 22. The first exhortation that is given to us by the Lord Verse 22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This describes our responsibility as believers to God, that we are to come to him wholeheartedly. Again, let us draw near with a true heart. This is you individually drawing near to God, how you're supposed to approach him. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We need to be coming to him wholeheartedly, pureheartedly as we approach him. That's the first exhortation. The second one, very next verse, verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. So the first one 
was our responsibility to God. The second one here in verse 23 is our responsibility to ourselves, individually, ourselves, personally, that we live with a confident expectation. Again, he says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful, that promise. Live with the confidence and the expectation that God has promised all that he has and he will deliver on all of that. This is our responsibility to ourselves. Live with that confident expectation. And the third, which we looked at in verse 24, again, let, and, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. So the first is our responsibility to God. The second in verse 23, our responsibility to ourselves. And here in verse 24, this is our responsibility to each other, to fellow believers. This is the way uh, that this is what we're called to do. It says, let us hold fast, to, or I'm sorry, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good work. So we've approached God the right way. This is how we're supposed to live in verse 23 with a confident expectation of God's return. And then 24, let us now consider one another. Let us provoke each other to, to love and to good works. And the way that you do that, verse 25 tells us, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That is how you fulfill your responsibility as a believer to fellow believers. Uh, the other two are very clear. Verse 22, verse 23, your responsibility to God, your responsibility to yourself. Verse 24, your responsibility to others, and it's done through what it says there in verse 25. Each of these exhortations, they all begin the same way, but each speak of a responsibility to a different area. And the area of responsibility we're talking about tonight is that to each other. How you're supposed to be responsible to one another, each believer's. We are, it says, to consider one another, to provoke unto love and to good works. And the way we do that is by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. In other words, we stick together and we remain connected. This is not a suggestion. This isn't just good advice. This isn't a desire of God. This is a command. It's an imperative. Attending church and fellowshipping with believers in the name of Christ was and is not an option. They didn't get up, get to wake up and decide if, if they felt like attending church. They didn't wake up and see what the weather looked like before they decided if they're going to be going to church today. It wasn't up for discussion because God made a clear command that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. In many homes across America, children woke up this morning and asked their parents, Mom, Dad, are we going to church today? And if that question has to be asked, there's already a problem. If that question needs to be asked, there's issues that are underlying that need to be addressed. Other than being sick, the rule of thumb in our house was if the sun came up, you were going to be in church this morning. When you look at the first days of the church, the early days of the church throughout the book of Acts, you see that believers were gathering in private and they were gathering in public. The more formal gatherings, formal gatherings were in the temple and then in synagogues, and the more informal gatherings were in individual homes where they had little, little churches out of a, a small group of believers that were meeting in a person's home. But I want, I want to look at each of these two areas as we look at the command to stick together. There's public gatherings and there's private gatherings. Let's look first at the public gatherings. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, we read this. It says, and they continuing daily with one accord and in the temple. Shortly after all the hostility against Christ, the followers of Christ were gathering in public in the temple to worship God. Shortly after the hostility. 
Now, it's almost as if they were looking for trouble, right? All of these things are going on. Christ has been crucified. He's not long after his resurrection and ascension. All of a sudden, they're getting right back to it. And they're preaching the name of Christ in the synagogues and the temple, all the public places. And the fact that they gather together is incredibly significant. The more that believers come together for, for worship, we are gradually conforming each other into the image of Christ. As believers today gather in the name and in the power of Christ in the midst of a chaotic world, we find that we have a lot in common with the believers in the early days of the church throughout the book of Acts, who publicly gathered in the temple where they could be seen of all and didn't care what happened to them. They were dealing with intense turmoil, and it's no wonder that people in those days were looking for the same hope and the joy that the believers had. The truth is that the devil would love for us to only focus on the mundane of life. He would love for the fellowship of, of believers to only be the meaningless chatter that people have around a water cooler or at a country club. But the fellowship we see in the New Testament is that of more of a holy partnership. It is a communion of souls, and it is perhaps the best and probably best illustrated in maybe our communion services. Nothing connects us with Christ more than a communion service, more than having the Lord's Supper. There's a joint connection that believers share with Christ as we partake in the wonderful memorial service of what our Savior has done for us. And sadly, even with God's command here in Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, many believers don't take church attendance seriously. I've been pastoring now for a little over 11 years, and I feel that I've heard almost every excuse under the sun as to why people aren't in church. And even when I'll call people to make sure they're okay, when I didn't see them in church. Most people, they'll let me know, Pastor, we won't be here, we're gonna be traveling, we're gonna be away, whatever it is, they'll let me know. But when I don't see them, I'll try and give them a call and make sure that they're okay. And it's funny, before I even ask them why they weren't in church, they're coming up with all these excuses letting me know why they weren't there on Sunday. And I've heard everything. And to the point where I don't even wanna hear the excuse anymore. Are you alive? Okay. It'd be really nice to see you in church. I don't want to hear that the alarm clock didn't go off. I don't want to hear you had a, a late night. I don't want to hear that, you know, you had a lunch reservations that, you know, would cut into, you'd have to cut into because the pastor is so long-winded. I don't want to hear any of that. That's never the case here, so don't, you don't have to worry about that. But I've heard every excuse under the sun. I've had... People tell me they don't need church because they can worship God anywhere. That was the most exciting one. I don't need to come to church. I can worship God anywhere. I've had people tell me these are real responses that people have given me. They can worship at home just as easily as they can worship at church. Okay? They can worship in their car. Okay? Don't close your eyes as you're doing it. Uh, they can worship on the golf course. I had a hunter tell me that he can worship in his tree blind just as easily as he can worship in the fellowship of people here in a church building. Anywhere they can do it. Now, again, these are all answers, legitimate answers that people gave to me and with a straight face to boot. Sometimes I just wish that Christians would treat our times of fellowship the way ordinary people treat going to sporting events. Someone has created, and more of a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, example of what it would look like if ordinary people approach sporting events the way Christians approach church attendance. Here's a list of reasons for no longer attending professional sporting events. So 
Every time I go, they ask me for money. The people I sit by aren't very friendly. The seats are too hard and uncomfortable. The coach never comes to call on me. The referees make decisions that I don't agree with. Some games go into overtime and I'm late getting home. My parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. My kids need to make their own decisions about which sports to follow. Now, again, this is more tongue-in-cheek, but you kind of get the picture here, right? It's true that some people legitimately cannot attend church. We, we call them shut-ins. Physically, they're unable to be here on a consistent basis. But for those who can, there's no substitute for church. There's no substitute for human interaction with fellow believers together under the teaching of God's word. Believers need to be publicly connected. But secondly, notice some of the private gatherings that we see. As important as the public gatherings are, so are private gatherings. Looking, at, looking again at Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, the Bible goes on to say, it says, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, same verse, it says, And breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Home Bible studies and fellowship groups can be incredibly beneficial. It doesn't always have to be in a formal setting where we're gathering together. It's okay to fellowship with believers outside of church and in our homes. That's okay to do that. You can be friends outside of this building. Did you know that? Sometimes we need that reminder. Because we, we leave here and say, all right, see you next week. I get enough of you for an hour or so on Sunday. It's okay to fellowship outside of church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, the idea that we see here is that they're fellowshipping from house to house as much as they're doing the formal gatherings as well. It shows us that there's a nice balance of this going on in the days of the early church. Whether these private gatherings happen at homes or even in, these even in this building, it's good to incorporate more times of fellowship with believers. There's so much good that comes out of believers fellowshipping, whether in a larger scale or a smaller scale, whether it's through public or private gatherings, believers need to remain connected. Now, we've looked at the command to stick together. But secondly, I want you to notice the importance of sticking together, the importance of sticking together. It may not really hit us all that hard here in America, at least. But imagine how you would feel about attending church if it were illegal to attend church. If, if authorities were cracking down and they were looking for people offending the law and breaking the law, if the law dictated you could not go to church, how would you feel? Some of you are thinking, I can't wait for that to happen. I've been looking for an excuse why not to come. I think you would quickly find that church attendance is a priceless privilege, one that we get to enjoy because of the freedoms that we have here in this country. Just think about the impact you have on fellow believers, uh, on a fellow believer's life as we stick together in church. We promote the spirit of love. Look again at Hebrews 10, verse 24. Again, our responsibility to fellow believers, it says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love, unto love. The love that is mentioned here is the strongest type of love that can be demonstrated. It is a self-sacrificing love. It's the Greek word agape. I have friends outside of church, but the ones that I truly love the most are the ones that I've gotten to know within church. 
The more we gather together, the more we build a love for one another. You may not fully realize just how strong and powerful that love is until you're separated from church for a while. The more we're together, the more we're aware of the needs of others and what we can do to help others and, and vice versa. When we're together, we're able to share concerns. We're able to share praises. We're able to laugh together. We're able to cry together. And let's not forget the food as well. The believers there in Acts, it says, from house to house, they were breaking bread. Must have been Baptists. They know. It's all about the food and gathering around a good meal. You can't just have a gathering like that and not have food. But the point is that God uses our time together to knit our hearts in love. And as that love for each other grows, so does our love for God who brought us together in the first place. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, none of us want to sit in church not talking to anyone and having no one talk to us. It's almost unsatisfying when you come to church and you only hear the sermon and you go home and no one else has spoken to you and you've spoken to no one. And that's not a dig against me or even what the Word of God has to say, but it's almost like you've missed something, that there's something that just is lacking in your time that you were here within these walls. Look again at what it says in verse number 24. It says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That word provoke. It speaks of interacting with fellow believers to the point that we're stirring one another up. It's an on-purpose kind of thing. You're going out of your way to do it. We're to purposely and intentionally fellowship with believers to do God's good work, to bring about the spirit of love. Some of us need to get busy provoking one another in church. It's okay to do it. Provoke one another in church. Now, not in a mean way, but in a good way. Every, evidently, when I was younger, I was pretty good at provoking my older brother. When I thought he was going to be the only one getting in trouble for hitting me, all, all of a sudden I'm finding out what the word provoke means and that I was the instigator and in everything, provoking him to hit me and I'm getting in trouble with him. How fair is that? He's older than me. I didn't even know what the word meant. And my parents would ask you, did you provoke him? I have no idea. My brother says, yeah, he did. He, he egged me on. He, he called me names and tried to do this. And so we would both get in trouble. And I was pretty good at provoking one another. But what this verse is telling us is that we need to be outspoken. We need to be provoking one another. We need to lead the charge. We need to be the straw that stirs the drink and fellowship together as we stir up love among fellow believers. We end up, though, being too shy for so many reasons, which often aren't even true. We, we kind of tell ourselves, well, you know, this person, they like to stick to themselves. Really? Did they actually tell you that, or is that just what you're thinking? Because nine times out of ten, people are more social than what you give them credit for. Invite people to your house for dinner. That's okay. You can have people to your house for dinner. Fellowship with people outside of church. Talk to people in church. Get to know Everyone that goes to church with you, go out and grab coffee with someone. Go, if coffee's not your thing, get tea, get hot chocolate. Go grab some lunch, break some bread. Get out of your comfort zone and just do something to stir up a spirit of love among the people of God. And here's a really crazy thought. I know no one will ever do it, but maybe just humor me sometime. Although the Santiago's, you guys must have been telepathically aware of my notes. This is going to sound blasphemous, but sit somewhere different in church the next time you come in this building. I dare the rest of you to do it. I know you're not, because you all have your self-assigned seats, 
Sit in someone else's seat the next time you come in this building. Will you do that? Can I? Will you do that? Larry, you will? Maybe? Maybe? No, I don't. You stay where you are. Sometimes we act as if the building's going to fall apart if we're not occupying our seat. I would just love to see the reaction of someone if someone else took your seat and just, you know, you come in and flabbergasted. They don't know what to do. Their seat's all over the place, but they're in my seat. Where am I going to sit? As you do that, and as you see the concerned look on their face, invite them out to lunch, and you can explain to them at lunch why you sat in their seat. Give it a shot. Provoked unto, it says provoke unto love, but also provoke unto good works. Look again at verse 24. It says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now, you've all heard the expression that many hands make light work. We saw that yesterday. Man, what a joy it was to, to, to see all the different people helping out with Fall Fest. Uh, we are better, we are more productive as believers doing the Lord's work when we're doing it together. Collectively, we are able to offer great, greater support to missionaries all over the world than we could ever have been able to do individually. We're just coming off of Fall Fest and really had an awesome day yesterday. And I can tell you it was really neat to see so many different volunteers uh, before, during, after the festival uh, helping out. We had people serving with Fall Fest who don't normally come out and serve. There's definitely more we could be doing, but I'm encouraged when I look around and I see slowly but surely People are being stirred up to serve in different capacities. We're stretching ourselves. We're getting out of our comfort zones little by little, and we're doing things that we wouldn't normally do. That's a good thing. Ephesians 2.10 states, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God created us to do good works. And the church is at its best when believers are active in doing God's good work. Our faith in God was never intended to be a passive faith. It is intended to be an active faith. As we read on in verse 25 here in Hebrews chapter 10, we also see that we're to be encouraging one another. It says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together and the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The idea of exhorting where it says there, is that of, of encouraging. And one of the purposes of gathering together and fel as fellow believers is to encourage one another. When you're discouraged, no matter the reason, one of the best places to be is in church. Someone has defined encouragement as pouring courage into those who need it. Who better to do this than believers for one another while we're in church? Wherever we go, we should be a blessing to the people that we encounter. People should always know that there is a Christian in their midst, not because we hit them over the head with the Bible, but because we're always encouraging. Now, sometimes it's necessary to swing your Bible, but even as you do that, do it in an encouraging manner. When we as a church can collectively embrace this attitude of encouragement and exhortation, we threaten to turn our community and the world around us upside down. You know what? That's a good thing. Because I don't even recognize the world anymore. Who wouldn't want to be part of a church that makes people stronger, wiser, and more confident? When we're not encouraging one another, we're just creating a culture of despair. 
There's already plenty of that in the world. We shouldn't be competing against one another, but working together to make the body of Christ stronger every single day. And notice third, the power that's available to us. The power that is available to us. Again, verse number 25 in Hebrews chapter 10. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. One of my favorite old-time preachers to read is Charles Spurgeon. One thing that many people don't know about him is that he wasn't saved until he was a teenager. But that's not even the, the crazy thing. He was actually on track to be a farmer. He didn't want to be a preacher. He wanted to be a farmer. And he was struggling over this, over this decision for a little while and decided that he would study Greek and Latin first. His life would forever be changed by the cook of the school that he attended. An older woman named Mary King invited him to church one day. And that led to many conversations with her about her faith and eventually paving the way for Charles Spurgeon to trust in Christ as well. God used a lowly cook to invest time in the life of a teenager. And that teenager would go on to be one of the greatest preachers um, that this world has ever known. What do you think God can do through you? We often dismiss the possibility that, that someone could use someone, that God can use someone like us. Who are we? Who are we as far as level of significance in this great world? But this time, or over time and time again, God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. The only quality that God is looking for in a person is that of availability. It doesn't matter if you're a cook. Doesn't matter if you're a janitor, doesn't matter if you're a student, if you're a teacher, if you're a businessman, if you're an engineer, if you're a rocket scientist, if you're a pastor, if you're just a stay-at-home mom. And I say just a stay-at-home mom with no negatives attached to that at all because that is probably more work involved in that than what most of us do. God can use you to have an eternal impact on the lives of those around you if you just make yourself available to be used by God. That's all he's looking for. All it takes is for you to encourage, to inspire, and to edify those around you. You can do this over the phone. You can even do it through an email. You can do it by sending a card or just talking to someone face-to-face. And let me encourage that. Talk to someone face-to-face. What if you made it a point to offer a word of encouragement to at least one person every church service you came to? Just one person. Single them out. Pray about them over the course of the week. Find out what they're going through. Find out what specific things that you can be praying for. And just approach that one person. Maybe it's a different person every single week or every single service. And just offer them a word of encouragement. I promise you that this spirit will become infectious. And before you know it, you will have people approaching you in church that have never spoken to you. And they'll be telling you horrible things like they've been praying for you. And they appreciate some of the different things that you do. Can you imagine such a thought? Who would dare do that? Who wants to be a part of a church where that happens? Well, the day is quickly approaching when the Lord's going to return. The world around us is growing increasingly worse. The church, now more than ever, needs to be motivated to build one another up into something that truly glorifies God. If there was ever a day when we need the church, it's today. It's today. If there was ever a time when we need to be inviting our unsaved friends and family to church, it's now. May our church never become a cold 
and an empty place because we're refusing to let our lights shine for Christ in this dark and dying world. On a cold and frigid winter night, a husband and a wife had made themselves comfortable in front of their fireplace as they awaited a visit from their pastor. The husband had all sorts of excuses, primed and ready to go as to why they had failed to attend church hardly more than once a month for the last year. He figured that they were just as good and just as spiritual as those who attended every single service throughout the course of the week, every single, every single week, every single month, and throughout the entire year. The doorbell rang. The pastor entered the home. Remaining in his coat, the pastor silently walked up to the fireplace, took the tongs, and lifted a, a brightly glowing coal from the fire and placed it on the hearth. And still, without saying a word, he just stepped back to watch. After a short while, that once glowing coal turned into a cold, dark mass. Finally, the pastor turned to the man and simply gave him a look that spoke volumes. The husband got the message. Like that coal, we will burn brightly when we're together as believers. But when we stand alone, we'll burn out. When Christ does return... May he find us faithfully serving as bright and shining beacons of light and a collective beacon of light here at Latham Bible Baptist Church to the people in this community and in this region. Would you bow with me in prayer tonight? Heavenly Father, we know, Lord, that for any of what we talked about tonight to get done, it is going to be through your help, through your wisdom, and through your guidance. But Lord, I pray that we would at least do our part. Lord, that we would consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as we see the day approaching. Lord, may we live to be the perfect example of what you called us to be individually and collectively. Lord, that we would be a light that is set up on a hill where all others can see you clearly shining brightly through us and we can have an eternal impact on the people around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.